the increase in pay was just, it was fucking stupid. I would say I did start to become that person. I had the Porsche, I had the big watch. My, my jeans were worth more than my sofa's worth. You know, you become a bit of a twat. Um, but when I lost it, I wasn't really that bothered. <laughs> so, okay, I thought you were going to do your intro and then I was going to do my intro. So, hi everybody, my name's Andy Rose. I am the owner of Snow Camps Europe, a skiing business based in Capron, Austria. I also am a restaurateur in the summer, running a restaurant in the mountains above uh, a village called Fush here in Austria. And uh, yeah, very happy to have been asked to come and talk about growing up. Yeah, so should we start with how you grew up? Seems to be a good place to start. Eh? So uh, yeah, um, I don't think I wanted. I don't think I need to go back all the way to kind of early childhood because um, I think my story really started when I was around eleven. Um, I was from an average family. We didn't have a massive amount of money, but we weren't poor, let's say. And um, I went into senior school. And literally on the second or third day of senior school, I got given a letter and uh, I thought I was in trouble. So I took this letter home and kind of left it on the countertop and thought no more of it. And I was waiting to get a telling off for whatever I'd done on my first couple of days at senior school at the age of 11. And uh, I basically got told, uh, what, what's that letter? I said, I don't know. So they read it. My mother, my mum read it and uh, basically said, you can't go on that. And I was like, what's that? And she says, it's a skiing trip. And I went, a skiing trip? <laughs> and I'd never even thought of going skiing before. So I got this letter. And um, one thing that's kind of quite poignant to my whole childhood is I was relatively heavily dyslexic, or I am heavily dyslexic. So I looked at this letter and I kind of read it. And all I could see was Switzerland skiing, seven days, 132 pounds. And I was like, wowza. It's a lot of money because this is like 1981. So uh, £130 pound was quite a lot of money. But um, I decided to go against my mother's uh, idea of not being able to go. And uh, I went out and got a job so I could afford to pay for the ski holiday. So the deal was I would pay for the ski holiday. And for Christmas, I could have a pair of ski pants and a ski jacket. So this kind of started my skiing journey which then continued as I was growing up through senior school. I wasn't very, or I'm not very academic, um, even though as I've grown up, I've been relatively successful in some different kind of jobs and industries and whatnot. But uh, I wasn't at all academic. The only thing I enjoyed at school was was sports. And um, even though I, I wouldn't say I didn't enjoy school, I loved going to school. I never missed a day of school. Um, where normally people who don't enjoy school just don't go to school. Um, I did go to school, but I just I just didn't get on with it, you know. Um, didn't come out of school without any qualifications. But what I did do over the several years of being at senior school is I went skiing. After the first ski holiday to Switzerland, uh, which I say was about £132, the letter came around again, and it was something like £140. I was like, right, I'm going to have to work harder. So I carried on working each year in school or after school whilst attending school to pay for ski holidays, um, which kind of got me to where I am now. But the journey from school to here has been quite a complex one. So 
I'm skiing every year with the school once a week. I'm kind of, I'm into it. I'm getting the bug. And if anyone said, what do you, would you want to do after you leave school? I would say, I want to be a ski instructor. People at that time, don't be stupid. You can't be a ski instructor. It's three months of the year. What you're going to do the rest of the time was always the thing. What are you going to do the rest of the time? Because you can't make a career out of being a ski instructor. So I was adamant that you could. And um, when I was about 15, um, I was obviously still at school, I started going to a dry ski slope. And I started skiing once a week throughout the year at a dry ski slope. And when I was 16, I took a ski instructor qualification. And I, I, I actually stayed on at school. So in England, you can leave at 16 or you can stay on what you would normally stay on to do is A-levels. But I just stayed on just to carry on doing school because it was kind of like, well, I'm not going to go and get a job. Um, I'm probably not that employable without qualifications. Um, I'd thought about the army and uh, I stayed on school for the next two years, basically, so I could continue going on the school skiing trip. And uh, it was whilst on what would have been the last school skiing trip that I met a lady who worked for the, co- the organisation that the schools used to go with, which was called a, a company called Schools Abroad. And uh, this lady, Angela Minton, said to me, have you thought about getting a job with our our company and I was like well what has and she said well ski technicians are the kind of the the thing that we need where you don't need a language you don't necessarily need a skiing qualification you would need to go on a tech course um and I was like sounds great yeah so I basically came back off that ski holiday found uh that there was a company in I think it was somewhere Kendall Pendle somewhere around the in Lancashire maybe that did um, tech courses for people who wanted to repair and maintain skis so I did this course and then I told this lady that I'd done this course and before I knew it I was being asked if I wanted to come and work in Austria when I was 18 in a ski resort managing the ski hire for um, one of schools abroad's resorts so Let's say, didn't do a great deal in school other than ski or thinking about going skiing. And because of staying on at school, it, it, it kind of got me my first real job, let's say. And um, I came over to Austria, 18, didn't really know what to expect. Um, started working in the ski high, looking after the skis. Um, and it was basically, we had about 250 to 300 school kids English school kids who would all arrive on a Saturday you do a big ski fit they'll all go onto the mountain on Sunday I'd go onto the mountain to check that the equipment wasn't faulty everything was working then I just got to ski all week I got to ski with like other members of staff with ski teachers who weren't working etc and um, that led and this was kind of like almost fate and I'm a big believer in fate is on New Year's Eve, the ski teachers all went skiing after work. And um, one of them was a guy called Stefan. He, he hit a pylon and he had an external fracture of the top of his leg. So that was his season done. So the next day, New Year's Day, would have been New Year's Day 1989. I went up the mountain and the uh, ski school director, a guy called Michael Hengel, who owned the ski school at the time, um, basically threw a jacket at me and said, go and teach Stefan's group. And I was like, oh, fantastic. Now, if you remember, all I've wanted to do for the last five, six years is become a ski instructor. So I've been in resort for about two or three weeks. And here I am in a red and white jacket that says Austrian ski school on it, taking a group of beginner English kids. 
So I kind of was like, happy days, here we go. And uh, that then led, in the same season, to me ending up working as a DJ. Now, I'd never been a DJ. I'd never stood in a nightclub and spun decks as it was in the day. Um, but again, fate, the uh, the DJ of the place where we used to take the school groups was sick. They needed someone to play some records. So I jumped behind the decks and started DJing. So for the rest of that season, I worked as a ski instructor for the ski school. I ran the ski hire and two nights of the week I DJed. So quite, quite, quite a busy and uh, very packed first season. So I'm now, what am I? I'm, I'm 19, I suppose, because I went when I was 18, I came back when I was 19. And uh, I came back to England and I was all set on, right, I'm going to do season after season after season. And then I... I kind of got into bar work just to, um, just 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 for work basically. Just to just to, I say pay the bills. I was still living with my parents, but I had to I had to contribute rent and and whatnot. And uh, I started working in bars, and it was coming to the next winter, and I called up the ski school and said, "Can I have a job?" And they were like, "Oh well, things have changed." and this has happened and that has happened and, and maybe we, we have, maybe we haven't. So I was like, oh, okay, whatever. So then I didn't really do anything about it and I ended up not skiing that, that winter and I got more and more into kind of the bar work which many years later became one of my biggest kind of career moves, let's say, that led has led on to many other things. Um, so I, I basically, for the next two or three years I had a string of kind of part-time jobs I was working as a a wine waiter in a four-star hotel I was working behind a nightclub bar I was also helping out in a ski shop and just doing just doing jobs really no kind of career path plan or anything like that still wanted to ski and then I'd started working for Alice Brigham's mountain sports in Chester um, which at the time the guy who ran that shop was their head buyer so he was kind of quite senior in the company and I said to Dave, his name was, I said, I, I want to come and work for the winter. But once it snows in Scotland, I'm going to Scotland. Because at this time, if you worked for a Scottish ski school, they would put you through your uh, Basie qualification, your British skiing qualification. And at this time, I didn't, still didn't really have a qualification, even though I'd worked three or four years earlier. So he said, no problem. He said, you come and work for us. And when you need to go to Scotland, you can go to Scotland. And when you come back from Scotland, you can start working for us again through the summer. So I was like, cool. So I was back into kind of repairing skis, servicing skis, selling skis. Um, And it never snowed. It did not snow in Scotland. So Scotland didn't have a, se- a season. Not not a flake of snow fell in Scotland. In the, in this must have been 90, what would it have been, 92 maybe, 93 is that so that unusual? kind of was it, huh? Is that unusual for Scotland? Um, where Scotland's very hit and miss, it'll it either gets it or it doesn't, or it can get it very early on and then it gets nothing more, or it doesn't get it until late, or they might have like a four week season. Um, back then, I, I suppose a, a, a Scottish winter with no snow probably was quite unusual, but Scotland has always been very hit and miss. But that kind of got me out of skiing. Um, and <clears throat> I had also met a girl at the time, which was kind of like, well, I'm not going to go away skiing in Europe because she was at university. 
so I just carried, kind of carried on. I got another bar job, and I then left. <coughs> I left the sports shop, worked in a restaurant, a pizza restaurant, and then the pizza restaurant were opening a another restaurant near Birmingham. So I decided that I would transfer down to their new site, and I went down as a bar manager. And um, it was a it was a bit of a funny site. It wasn't kind of city centre. It was out in the sticks a little bit in Warsaw on the outskirts of Birmingham and this place it didn't really take off even though the one where I'd worked in Chester was extremely busy we had a very good product uh the the concept was good where we were it just didn't work for some reason so I ended up I'd left about I would say four months after getting there and obviously I'd moved I'd moved out my parents I'd rented a place in Warsaw and kind of I'd moved my life there um but while I was there I'd gone to a TGI Fridays on the Hagley Road in Birmingham. And at the time, TGI Fridays was the place to be a bartender. If you were going to be a bartender anywhere, you wanted to be a bartender at TGI Fridays. And Why? Um, because the training um, was like renowned in the industry to be the best bartender training. Um, if you wanted to go and then like work on a cruise ship or you wanted to get yourself to America and bartend in America or, or, or pretty much anywhere else in the world, the training that, that Fridays offered at that time was the best training you could possibly get. It was also the style of bar that Fridays was. It's it's changed a little bit now. Um, obviously, v- very much kind of like what you saw in the film Cocktail. Very A lot of entertainment, a lot of flair massive cocktail menu they were the they were they it was all the bars were always pioneers when they came to the uk and there was nothing else like it really so i'd been to this one in birmingham and i was like if i'm gonna stay as if i'm gonna stay working in a bar i'd rather go and work in the place to work like the place that everyone wants to go so I, i spoke to birmingham and they didn't have any positions and what normally happened at Fridays is you started actually as a bar back which is basically someone who washed glasses filled fridges cooked fruit and supported the bar team and you had to do it like six months of that before you could even get a spot on the bar this is how kind of privileged you had to be to get on the bar especially in places like Birmingham and the central London restaurants so I um I ended up going to their store in manchester in sale and i got myself an interview there because they just literally had two or three bartenders leave all at once who'd moved to open a bar just down the road so i was in the right time at the right place again and i got offered a a job which would mean i could go straight into their bartender training and then become a bartender so this is now about 92 so what am i 22 so uh, i get this job at fridays and at the time, I didn't realise how serious a job it was and how serious it was to get a job at Fridays. As I said, back then, they, they used to say getting a job at Fridays was like getting a, a place on a Broadway show. It was that tough, especially on the bar. So did my training, so I worked as a bartender in, in Manchester. And then they, they have this yearly competition that comes around. And this this is poignant to the rest of the journey, let's say, to, that got me here today. Um, and these competitions were once a year. And what they were basically is by by running a, barten- a competition for bartenders within their their restaurant group, what they did is they got all bartenders to retrain themselves once a year because you had to relearn all your cocktail recipes, you had to all your food menu. So it was, it was a big training exercise that 
the bartenders thought it's just if I'm better than the next person, I can win money, I can win a trip to America, I can. But it was it's a big training exercise. So I started. 92 in the 93 competition I didn't have a chance of getting that place within our restaurant never mind getting to the regional finals or the grand final but I went in it and I was like mm, okay and there was there was almost a formula that you you a formula to to winning this these these heats and these competitions um obviously you had to know your stuff you had to have the the, the- theory knowledge and the the recipe knowledge and the food knowledge and it had to be like so accurate and to such a high standard and level. So as long as you were good at retaining information, but you could then also perform on the front bar with personality, with flair, with making drinks to accuracy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then you had a good chance of of getting a place, especially in your store, and maybe in the, in the, the regional finals. So uh, the next year, I won the Friday. I won the Manchester Heat. Then went to Glasgow and I won the Glasgow heat, which got me into the final, into Birmingham, back to where I originally wanted to work. So you then, we actually went away on a trip before the final. So all the finalists, we went to Belgium, we got took to Belgium. To We went and saw a brewery, we got taken out and all these different things. So you're, you're meeting the top bartenders. And, that, and at that time, I think there was seven of us. So there was some from Covent Garden, there was some from... Uh, Birmingham, there was a guy from Coventry and whatever. And you're, you're kind of mixing with what is, is, in essence, the top seven bartenders in the company. So th- these are the guys that then get selected to go and train the new restaurants as they open. They get sent around the world to open Friday's restaurants, etc., etc. So for me to be there, being somebody who academically was crap, I've just retained all of this information, a thousand cocktail recipes that each one has got multiple um, multiple points, let's say. So one, one recipe might have 15, 15 things that you've got to remember. And I've retained all of this information and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, this, this is actually quite impressive what I've done. So after that final, I got a phone call and asked, I, I, I got asked if I wanted to transfer to Birmingham because I was now within the top seven bartenders in the company. So you become almost like a, a, val, a, val, a valued asset to the other restaurants and especially the busier ones, because if they can transfer you in as a top bartender, they don't have to spend six weeks training you and on the hope that you're going to then leave and they've just spent six weeks because it used to cost an absolute fortune to train a bartender. So I transferred and I transferred because a guy who I'd shared a room with on the Belgium trip, Darren West, who is a massive um, influencer in my growing up and kind of what happened to me later on in business. Um, he called me on New Year's Eve, which was New Year's Eve 93, and said, do you want to transfer? Reese is going to Covent Garden. Now, Reese was another guy who was in the final, who Reese, along with two other guys that were in that final, went on to open Beer One, which sold for about 65, 75 million a few years ago. They opened something like 48 bars. Who did they sell it to? Uh, they sold it to the people who own Slug and Lettuce, I believe. But they, so going off on a slight tangent, these guys who were in competition with me back in 93, I'm sure it was 93, 94, um, Steve Locke, Lee Miller, Reese Oldfield, they were all at Covent Garden. They then went off and did some other stuff. They all came back. They went into management at Fridays. Then they left. 
and they got three £10,000 car loans, opened be at one in Battersea, opened a second one which nearly killed them, nearly put them bankrupt, opened a third one, and then they just opened and opened and opened. Then they got some private funding, massive growth, more private funding, massive growth, sold. I, I, I know one of them has retired at the age of about 43, um, and the others, so, I think, are doing a little bit of work here and there. Yeah, so for people not from the UK, because I feel like this is a very British concept, that yeah. everything here is a chain, so it's like even the bars. Because it's like you just don't have that in... Yeah, well, you, you don't, don't do you? You not don't have really. that in other places where it's like the bar, the bars here, like where you go out, it's literally like... Yeah, they... Like, um... <laughs> Yeah, like it's, it's strange because you do, you do get independent bars, just like one-offs or one person might own two in two different cities. But I think if you're going to, if you're, if your aim and whether the guys, whether this was their plan at the beginning, whether it was to open a chain of bars and to sell to a big operator back, back when they started, it probably wasn't. It was probably, let's just start a bar so we get ourselves out of working for someone else and we can do it the way we want to do it. But all they did and this goes back to the Fridays thing, is they based it on the Friday's model, which was a successful way to run a bar. Anyway, I digress. Where was I before that? So Darren, Darren said, do you want to come and work in Birmingham? So I've gone to Birmingham. I've transferred early, early that year because he's called me on New Year's Eve. So about three, four weeks later, I'm in Birmingham. And I start working at Birmingham. Birmingham was a much busier bar and you made a lot of money. Um, or you had the potential to make a lot of money because bartenders at Friday's, were paid commission so commission on your sales so as well as being someone who took an order you actually sold so Fridays was very much about the bartender is a salesperson they're not an order taker and the bartender can get you from what you want a vodka and orange but you walk away with the green eyes or you're ordering a tequila sunrise but you end up with a frozen margarita because so it's all about upselling yeah, exactly. It was all about upselling. It was and it was soft selling. Rather it was than just getting people hammered. It should never be your intention to get people hammered, but it was more about by by soft selling recommendation, finding out what they liked was giving them a better experience than the vodka and orange that they would drink anywhere and everywhere. So when they came to Fridays, they would have a much a, a better experience because of the way you served them, the way you sold to them. They they what would just get they would just get a better product for it. Now, obviously, what you were doing whilst giving them that better experience was you were taking more money from them and putting that in the till because that directly influenced how much money we would earn through the week. And also going back to like the average, if you're, if, if you're, t if the average round is a tenner, you might be getting 50 pence in tips. If the average round is 20, you're getting a pound in tips. If you're working on a percentage model. So the more we sold, the more tips we made. And again, because Fridays was seen as an American style bar, well, obviously it is an American style bar, um, people were more likely to tip. Um, and Birmingham, I say, was extremely busy. You could put in a lot of commission and you could put in a lot of tips. So 
I carried on with these bartending competitions. I won the Birmingham Heat that year, went to the next final, came second in that final. So this is the whole of the UK. And I did this basically, I did the following year and came second. Then I got asked to go and open the Leeds restaurant. So they were opening a restaurant up in Leeds. Um, there would always be two bartender trainers and then there would be kitchen trainers and floor trainers and door trainers and whatever. So I was went on the what was called a new store opening team. Um, we got to we got to Leeds, I think it was about January the twelfth, and we opened Leeds and rightly or wrongly I decided to transfer from Birmingham to Leeds. Financially suicidal because Leeds was a smaller store wasn't as much potential to make um, commission and the tips were not going to be anywhere near as good. But like the place, like the people thought, what the hell, I can always go back to Birmingham or go to a busier one. So I then won the, the Leeds um, challenge that year, went to the final, I think it came third in the UK because Stephen Lee, who then later went on to open the bars, came first and second. And then... After two years in Leeds, so I would have gone to another final because I basically got to the final every year then for as long as I was at Fridays. So I was always ranked in the top three bartenders in the company. Um, so while I was at Leeds, I then got asked to go to Egypt and I opened the first ever Fridays that was on a boat on the River Nile. And I was there for six or eight weeks, opened that, came back, got sent to um, Mauritius for two weeks and that was kind of, it was a Friday's thing, but it wasn't a Friday's thing. It was actually for a guy called Sol Kersner, who most people know the Atlantis Resort in the Bahamas. Um, he owns, he owned at the time, whether he does now, he owned that and he owned a place in South Africa called Sun City, which was a big like leisure place, uh, casino and hotels and things. So it was to go and work training his bartenders on behalf of Friday's. And I kind of, I didn't really like really, I didn't really, really know what I was going into when I got there. But when I got there, it was linked with the hotel school of Mauritius. Um, we ran a competition while we were there. We did some TV work. We were in the papers and I trained, maybe I trained them for two weeks, but part of my payment was I could then stay for a week and just holiday. So I got like a three week holiday in Mauritius of where two weeks I had to work a few hours each day. And then I then decided I was going to leave and go to Australia. Now, Darren West got me to Birmingham. Six months later, Darren said, I'm leaving and going to Hong Kong. And I was like, right. Part of the reason I've come to Birmingham is because you're here. So he goes to Hong Kong to work in a place called the China Jump, which was basically a Friday's in Hong Kong. But it wasn't a Friday's. It was called the China Jump. Green and white stripes instead of red and white stripes. And um, it was ran by an ex-Fridays guy. Um, can't remember his name. I can remember his partner's name. Um, and this place was, as it would say, it was jumping. It was packed, this place. Hong Kong had never seen anything like it. It was always full of flight attendants, uh, cabin crew, pilots. Um, all of the rich Hong Kong people were in there. And after a few months, I got a phone call saying, do you want to come in on, do you want to come and work in Hong Kong? So Darren was on the phone again. And I was like, nah, I'm not going to do that again because I'll get to Hong Kong and two months later, you'll, you'll disappear somewhere else. So I stayed with Fridays 
until I decided I was going to leave Leeds because by this time Darren had moved to Australia because he had met a flight attendant in the China Jump, moved to Sydney to live with the flight attendant um, and then got married while I was in Mauritius so I couldn't go to his wedding. So I said, when I finish with Fridays, I'll come to Australia, do my year in Australia with a working holiday visa and I'll come over and see you. So the year before the Olympics, 98, this must have been. So I've gone, I've had what, eight years at Fridays, gone in as a trainee bartender, come out as one of the like top three guys in the country, opening stores across the world. I've, I've been, I went to Dallas with them. I went all over Europe with them. And the plan was to work for them in Australia because there was a Fridays in Melbourne in, was it the jam factory, the custard factory or something like this? Yeah, that's around the corner from where my parents live. Right, okay. So I don't know if it's there anymore. Uh, so I came came over are to we, Australia. Are we getting back to <laughs> skiing? Yeah, we are. We are, but but it's you've okay. yeah. You have, it, so you haven't thought about skiing in this whole time. I've been skiing as a tourist all of that time. I'm skiing as a tourist. Oh, okay. But you're okay. just like and I don't in, in the back of my head from that very first season. I am going to end up in Austria. And why Austria? Because that first winter was just the business. And I'd been to Austria twice before that as well. And I just liked Austria. I liked their way of life, um, the scenery. Um, obviously, I did the skiing that I'd experienced in Austria was great. Um, I just wanted to be in Austria. And okay. once I got to Australia, it was then a kind of a, if I wasn't in Austria, I'd want to be in Australia. And if I wasn't in Australia, I'd want to be in Austria. Why? Because I also enjoyed Australia a lot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I have questions from childhood yet. From childhood still. That's because we started at 11. <laughs> no, but so where, so you grew up in Chester. Yeah, in Chester. Um can you describe what Chester is for the Chester, Chester is a, a city. It is a Roman, an old Roman city. So it's got it's a walled city. Um, also, a lot of Tudor buildings, black and white buildings, dating back to God knows when. The walls are two thousand years old. So Tudor times came after the Romans, didn't it? We've got an amphitheater. It's it's on the side of a river. Um, yeah, I've been there. A, to, um, ve very, a very nice, a very nice place to 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 grow up um we actually live just outside of chester so 10 minutes from my house you're in rolling countryside um and what did your parents do uh shopkeeper my dad was my my mum and mum and dad basically had three shops in chester um one was like a toy shop one was like an everyday shop um general store kind of thing um and they're well, from around there Liverpool. Okay. They were from Liverpool. So um, my I had an auntie that owned the shops and my dad actually trained as a panel beater and worked for Watson's, which was the Rolls-Royce um, dealer and kind of main repair place in Liverpool. He did a, an apprenticeship there as a panel beater. Um, and my mum was working, I think she was working in a chemist. Um, and then... 
my auntie asked my dad if he wanted the shops because she was going to America. Um, she was emigrating to America. So he took the shops. They moved to Chester in around about 1966, I would say, um, just after having my sister. And then I was born in 1970. So my the early years were basically grown up, growing up around the shops. Um, I'd be there at the weekend. I'd be there after school. I would go to the cash and carry with my dad on the way to school. Um, and yeah, and that was. Is that, is that where you started working when you were 11? Uh, no, but I, I'd been, I'd worked before it being 11. Um, I worked because by the time I got to 11, I think 11 or 12, they sold the shops or they didn't sell them. They closed them. They, they, the leases were running out. So they didn't renew the leases because the, the street in Chester was linked to the shopping area of Chester. And then they put a bypass in. And once that bypass in went in, this street just died of death. P- people didn't go down that street to do their shopping anymore because it was no longer linked to the other end of the street. So they got rid of the shops about 72. Nah, not 72. That's and then one of those. 78, about 78, 78, 79. But I had worked, I had worked, I had experienced work at the age of like eight, nine, ten in the shops, whether that was bagging up. I say paid, I got my pocket money probably. Um, But I would be bagging up bags of sweets, 10 pence mix of sweets, bagging them up so they were pre-made. I was putting Brillo pads into brown paper bags. I was stacking shelves, uh, stood outside rattling the poppy tin when it was poppy day was coming up. But yeah. what I also did, and again, this kind of goes on to later stuff, is when pound coins came in, there was this big thing about, oh, you can have all these coins in your pocket. So they people produced pound coin holders. They were little plastic things that you put like five pound coins in. The, the, the fact that that was bigger than five pound coins was kind of like, but they kept them Wait, together in your pocket. What? Yeah, you, you missed all of this. No, we said pound notes, like dollar notes. Huh. So okay. when they said we're now introducing pound coins, people freaked out. I'm going to have all these coins in my pocket. So these th- these devices called pound coin holders came about. So I basically took them from the shop and sold them at school because it was like, all right, kids, you're all going to have all these pound coins in your pockets. You're going to need pound coin holders. So I would I would sell them at school and then I would take other stuff into school. So when Rubik's Cubes came out, we we didn't have a Rubik's cube. We had the, we had a cube, but it just wasn't branded Rubik's in the shop. So I would take them and sell them at school. So I was kind of wheeler dealing. And um, that was because you wanted money for skiing, or this was just yeah that that would that would have been to enable me. So I had my job, and that, the job that I had that enabled me to pay to go skiing each year was bringing. I basically brought in shopping trolleys at a, a supermarket. So we had a massive big supermarket. We must have had about, I don't know, 800 trolleys. So I used to go Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, and all day Saturday, just bringing the trolleys back into the supermarket. Um, and when I started, and you remember what we were getting paid a, yeah, well, it's a pound an hour. It was, it was slave labor, really. It was a pound an hour. Um, and it wasn't registered. They just paid you out of petty cash. Um, because when we weren't there, the guys who were 
employees stacking the shelves would get sent out to bring the trolleys in. But what it meant was on the busy nights, because it was nighttime shopping, and it was when nighttime shopping just started, on the busy nights, if they took the guy off the baked bean aisle to bring in trolleys, then they ran out of baked beans. So they decided to get two young kids in, pay us a little bit of money, and we would bring the trolleys in. And then what happened was... Huh? How did they find you? How did you? I went there. I, I was looking for a job to pay for my ski holiday. So I went round and said, do you have any jobs? And they mm. were like, we need someone to bring the trolleys in with the other lad who's bringing the trolleys in. So I kind of like, I just like that. Uh, but I said, they were paying us a pound, a pound an hour. And we did three hours Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then we did about six hours on a, a Saturday. So six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirty, fourteen, fifteen pound a week. But I think to pay for that holiday, I only needed to earn something like 10 a week. Um, but what happened after about a year, we had to be put on the books. We had to be paid and insured. So the pay went to like minimum wage, which meant we went to about £2.46. So an extra one fifty per hour. We we're like, whoa, we're rich, you know? So, yeah, and I did that. I did that up until 14 or 15. And then at that point I was allowed to go in the supermarket and stack shelves. So I was, I was on toilet rolls for about a year. And so what was it? So with this letter, were you the, were you specifically chosen to go on this ski trip or this was like, basically um, it never used to get opened up to the first year, but they hadn't sold as many places as they needed to. So they, they basically gave every first-year student who'd arrived at school in the first week got a letter in the hope that some people would be able to go and fill up the, the available spaces that they needed to sell. And what was it that appealed to you about it? Skiing was sport. The only thing I was good at was sport. So you are like, I'll just give it a go. Yeah, What other sport were you playing? Everything, really. Um, football. We had to play rugby because we were in a Welsh school. Um I played tennis, badminton. Oh, was your school over the border in Wales? Slightly. Ever so slightly. Not something I really talk about much. (laughs) (laughs) And then what was it about skiing that you loved from that first trip? It was just, it was just, I don't know. It was skiing. It was, we had a right laugh. There was a load of us from school. We went on a ski trip. We're in the mountains. There was masses of snow everywhere because back then it snowed properly um you were outside you were doing four hours of sport a day obviously we were learning we were all beginners falling over getting up again just having a good laugh and it was kind of like i want to go and experience that again and it was after about three or four weeks of skiing that i was getting good at skiing that i was like i could be better at this the more time i spent on it and therefore i want to be a ski instructor is that unusual that most that um a school would have a ski club now most most english schools will organize a ski holiday it is now more common we didn't have a ski club as such it was just a school holiday because they used to do a trip to france they would do a skiing trip they would do a trip to somewhere else so it was kind of there was different different departments organized different trips now that's quite common is this a government this is a state school yeah yeah now this is quite common in all state schools most state schools and 
non-state schools but now they do have ski clubs and ski teams which we never had because there are school of school racing events in the uk so schools will now have they'll do they'll do their school holidays but they'll also have a, a ski team that trains at a dry ski slope or an indoor slope and that, that that now is kind of feeding into like what would be the british teams and things like that that the kids will start at school mm-hmm. Because I think in some places you have this idea, I don't know if this is from Australia, that, but probably in the US as well, maybe, that it's skiing's like really elitist. But so that's not really the case in England. I mean, obviously it's still expensive. Yeah. Like, although 130 quid for a week in Switzerland in is pretty good. But in 1981. That, that now, yeah. that same trip for a, a school group now without a flight but with a coach is about a thousand so a kid going on a school ski holiday now they're paying about a thousand pounds and i would say they're getting a lesser quality than we got back then because we flew we so you got coached from the school to the airport you flew coached to the resort we stayed in nice hotels decent food and you were able to afford it collecting shopping trolleys like that's a pretty good deal say that again because you broke up a little bit you were able to afford this trip flights decent accommodation food everything for pushing shopping trolleys yeah yeah for 10 weeks 10 weeks where'd you get 10 weeks from well about that didn't you say you're making 15 pounds a week Ah, uh, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I think I had to. What did I have to? I had to pay ten pound a week to the school for thirteen weeks. So then, any more money I spent, I saved to buy goggles, gloves, blah blah blah. Yeah. Okay, so back to Australia. Yeah. Eventually, so- we've got to get to the point with the. Porsche and no mullet and all of that. Yeah. So Australia, just bar work, having a good time. There for a good time, not a long time. Applied for a job in a ski resort. Um, Thought, I'm here, may as well go and ski, see if I can get a job. Didn't get a job. Didn't get a job in a ski resort. Um, I don't know what, what ski resort it would have been. It was just a ski resort, whatever. Uh, but they were all advertising, and I was like, well, I'm here. I've got experience. I'll see if I can get a job. Didn't get a job. In New South Wales? Yeah. Uh, Vic- no, it would be Victoria, wouldn't it? Ski resorts from Victoria, right? You're in Sydney. I'm in Sydney, yeah. Yeah, no, there's ski resorts in near Sydney, six hours away or something. Perisher, I think. Okay. Yeah, anyway. so it would have been one of them kind of places. But never got... Never got a job, so carried on working in bars, then travelled like you you do, um, and then ended up leaving. So came back. Now, obviously, I said, when I see Darren, came back, went back to Fridays, worked at Fridays for another year. Then I moved into coffee. Uh, I was in coffee for a year until this Darren guy rings me and says he's coming back to England. And he's going back to England. Were you huh? still with this girl you mentioned, by the way? No, that one's long gone. There's another one. There's another okay. one that I've gone from Leeds to Australia with. Okay. 
So I've come back with hair from Australia. We're living in Reading. We intended to go back to Leeds, but we stayed in Reading. And I get this phone call that Darren is coming back to the UK. Darren's been working for the last year or so for a drinks company. Uh, I think it was Swift and More, it was called, in Australia. And he was coming to um, England to work for their English business, which was a business called Allied Demek, which at the time was the second biggest drinks company in the world. And he was transferring over because his boss from Swift and More had transferred over. And he called Darren and gone, there's a job here as a regional sales manager. Do you want to come back to the UK? So Darren brought his wife over to the UK and started working for this business, um, Allied Demek. And after about two months, I got a phone call saying, we're looking for a sales rep, a business development executive, you were called, to work the M4 corridor. And I lived in Reading, which was on the M4 corridor. So I said, um, I'll, I'll try and think if I know anybody that can do it. And uh, he was like, well, what do you mean? You're going to think if you, if you know anybody, you can do it. He said, do you not want to apply for it? So I was like, well, what do I know about being a business development executive? <laughs> I don't even know how to send an email. And um, he said, well, he said... He kind of basically said, you just got to walk into bars, talk to bartenders and get them to sell stuff. And I was like, all right, okay. I said, I might be able to do that. So anyway, I ended up getting a job in the second largest drinks company in the world who owned brands at the time we owned Tia Maria, Malibu, Teachers Whiskey, Lefroig, Maker's Mark, Sours of Tequila, Perigueux Champagne, um, loads of Australian champagne house, um, wine wineries we owned, um, uh, and yeah, I I started working for this business, and this is where we get onto into the realms of Porsches and things. And I started as a business development executive, earning the most money I'd ever earned, um, more than when I was a bartender in Birmingham, even uh, company car expense account got given a laptop, didn't know what to do with it, didn't even have to turn it on. And after about a year, I got I got put in charge of the team that I was within. So I was in the Southern team and Darren was put onto a, uh, a project and I was seconded into his role and I ran the team while he ran the project. And it turned out that I was quite good at this, this whole kind of corporate sales, marketing, um stuff <laughs> and uh i ended up after the secondment was given his team basically was kept on promoted into that role and then he then again went back to australia when i was left so he got me into fridays into Birmingham and then disappeared. And now he's got me into this business and then he disappears again. But I stayed and Allied Demek got bought out by Perno Ricard, who at the time were about the fourth biggest drinks company. But they they bought Allied and then Allied was split. Some of the brands and the business went to Perno and some went to uh, Beam Global, who owned Jim Beam. So I, at that time, I was running still running the southern team so i was a 
let's say it was called an area sales manager. It was it wasn't called that, but that's that's what it was. And then I had a business manager that I reported into, who he then reported into the sales director. So I was kind of one rung up the corporate slippery pole, let's say. And when Allied got bought, obviously people were going to get made redundant. Some people would go to the Perno business and some people would go to the Beam business. So I got called in for my, are you staying or are you going meeting? And I got offered my boss's job within the new business. So that was basically to run all of the sales teams for the UK, um, for the on-trade. So anyone walking into a bar, restaurant, or a small independent multiple group, uh, let's say, um, as well as I had a, a lady who did top top end hotels in London or whatever. So I had, I had a team of people across the country, and this was going really well until our CEO um, decided he was moving to uh, work for a Cobra Beer, the Indian beer brand Cobra Beer. And Cobra Beer back then was still privately owned. And as he went over to Cobra, he came back and dangled some big fat juicy carrots in six people's faces. And that was basically the senior team from the sales and marketing. And we all followed him to Cobra. And this was 18 months before the Icelandic banks went belly up, which you probably know all about because you kind of finance background aren't you let's say no you don't and maybe you were still at school or something so we went to grow what cobra say again what year is this what year is this this would have been so i left in 2009 so december 2008 i'm waiting for diagio to come in and buy whoever you're working for no didn't you never work had at anything Diageo? to do with Diageo. No. I thought you worked at Diageo. No, that was well. That was Allied and then Beam, Cobra. Okay. We've gone to Cobra to basically accelerate the growth of the business beyond belief, um, make it a truly mainstream beer brand. We've all been paid massive salaries. This is where I go out and buy a Porsche. So I literally I leave leave Beam, go to Cobra. Before I even start, I go and buy a Porsche because the amount of money that I was given was just ridiculous. Now, let's just go back to I'm a person that didn't even get a qualification in maths. I didn't get any qualifications, really. Nothing to talk about, you know. And I've managed to climb this slippery corporate pole to get this relatively senior position in what was at the time the only beer brand in the past 15 years to become a household name and, and, and scaled and scaled and scaled. And we were brought in to take this to the stratosphere. Loads of um, investment house funding, 45 million was the first money that came in. And uh, we, um, we started to do what we needed to do. And we were hitting the targets. We were growing the brand. What do well, you mean the only beer to become a household name? It was, so all other beer brands had been around for longer than 15 years. Like Heineken or Peroni. Yeah, yeah. Nothing new had come along that every person in every, so like everyone knows Hoover. Everyone knows the brand Hoover. Everybody knew the brand Cobra. I don't know Hoover. Hoover, they invented the vacuum cleaner. Oh, sorry. I thought you were talking about a beer. A beer, a beer called Hoover. Brilliant. So 
basically, if you said to, if you went to a um, hundred households and said, name an Indian beer brand, they would say Cobra. Yeah, okay. they may also say Kingfisher, but the, Cobra was the first beer in fifteen years, if not the first drinks brand, maybe that had become a household name. So, I'm driving around in my Porsche, got a big fat watch on my wrist, um, what, loads what? of money, and ah, uh, which watch? Uh, Breitling Hercules, I think it's called. It's been in the cupboard for the last three years. I've not even worn it. Last time I got it serviced, it cost about a £1,000 to get it serviced. I was like, I'm not going to wear it. Um, and it weighs me down, to be honest. Um, so do you feel like an imposter or anything at this point? Like, why am I here? I don't have... I didn't, throughout I don't the whole of the drinks myself. industry time, I was. I never applied for a promotion. I was always told we want you to do this or you're going to take that role. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. I was put on, I was, uh, when I was allied after about two years, whilst doing the secondment role, I was given the job of inducting and training 30 new people into the business. I used to train bartenders in bars in Egypt. I'm now Sorry. training, I'm training the gene pool of the sales and marketing division of the world, the second largest drinks company in the world i'm like how did this happen you know total like pfft. but you had confidence to do it well you were like, I guess i'm, I'm a confident it. person i can i can if you say it with conviction people will believe you won't they um but i'd obviously i'd done the job i'd done the job that i had to train them to do and i'd done it well enough to be promoted so obviously I was the right person to do it. I had a training background from Fridays. I understood the role. I understood how they had to behave, how they had to act, et cetera, et cetera. So, but yeah, I, I totally, all the way through, it was like, I can't believe I've gone from running a coffee shop, earning, I don't know what was earning, about 11 grand, to now I'm at Cobra earning fuckloads of money with the massive bonus potential. And then what happens the Icelandic banks go tits up. The next 40-odd million we're about to receive gets pulled. Cobra goes into a pre-packed, a pre-packed agreement with Molson Cause, and we, within two weeks, are all out of jobs. Huh. Ciao for now. Um, because we'd only been there for just over a year, we weren't entitled to any kind of enhanced um, redundancy. Uh, we got statutory redundancy. The bonus that we'd been told we could earn, which would double our salary, um, they only paid out on a flat line rather than a curve. So we lost a shit ton of money. The Porsche went like that. I had to sell the Porsche. Um, I had to rein in loads of stuff and was like, right, now what do I do? Because at the time, it wasn't just Cobra that had problems every drinks company in the country was going, hang on a minute, we need to trim a little bit of fat here, we need to reduce this, we need to do this. So I did, I went and had an interview with Perno Ricard, who I Wait. didn't really want to work for because I'd heard there it was quite, it was quite a stuffy place to be and very, very serious where Beam had been quite a relaxed drinks business. The work had to get done, but it was, it was a fun place to work. And Cobra is a relatively fun place to work because seven of us have come from Beam and we instilled that kind of ethos. But um, Perno was always very, very Diageo-like, very business-like. 
Um, so I actually did, I applied for a job, didn't get that job, which saw me go into, I, I started a business repairing cars, repairing car body work. I have no interest in repairing cars. I had no experience in repairing cars. Um, but why had the Porsche, I damaged my wheel. And I said to a friend of mine, I said, I've just damaged the wheel on the Porsche. It's £2,000 for a new wheel. I said, I can't believe it. And he said, ah, don't worry about that. He said, get my friend. Well, I can't remember what his name was. Let's say his name was Sid. He said, Sid will come round and fix it for you. And I was like, he's going to fix an alloy wheel. He said, yeah, he'll come round. it be about 60 quid. I was like, right, okay. So this guy came round my house, pulled up in a little white van, gave me a plug on an extension, said, Put, plug that into the house. And he got to work on fixing my wheel. And in about 30 minutes, he'd fixed my wheel. I could not see where the damage was. He'd repainted it. He relacquered it. It looked perfect. And uh, I said, 60 quid. And he went, yeah. And I went, there you go. There's your plug and there's your 60 quid. And I walked back in the house and went, 60 quid in 30 minutes. If you do four wheels a day, it's 240 pounds. Five days in a week, you can turn over. It was something like 52 grand turnover. I wonder how much it costs to repair a wheel. So I got onto the internet, Alloy Wheel Repair. Now, I'd never looked at this up until this moment after having a wheel repaired. And sure enough, there are these businesses that repair alloy wheels. And I'm like, how, to, how do you repair an alloy wheel? And I look at some YouTube videos. And I'm like, how much does it cost to repair an alloy wheel? And I'd just given him £60, and his materials would have cost him about 70 pence. So he'd earn £59.40 for his, his time in 30 minutes. But what about the tools he needs? Yeah, obviously he's got his setup costs, but he has just earned from that wheel best part of 60 quid because it was 70-odd pence for the materials. So and once you've covered your materials, obviously you've got you your capital setup costs. You're, you're, you're earning good money. So I was like, hang on a minute, I'm going to start looking into this because th- at this point I knew we were leaving um, Cobra in about two weeks' time. So... Anyway, cut a long story short, I ended up I ended up setting up a mobile car body repair business at a time when I should have just come to Austria, because in the back of my mind, over all of this time, growing up through school, going to Australia, doing all of these jobs in a drinks business, paying to go on ski holidays, and paying a lot of money to go on ski holidays, I always, when I came back from a ski holiday in Austria yearned to go back to Austria. Now, at this time leaving Cobra, with the little bit of money I got selling the Porsche, I should have just gone, right, I'm going to Austria. But I didn't. Wait, can I just ask, why did you say the Icelandic banks? It was the Icelandic or the Swedish banks that went tits up in 2009? The investment banks... I don't know. I'm just a simple lad like from Chester. I've got no qualifications. I've got clue. I got clue how it works. Okay, okay. I don't you're know where these forty-five pound million checks were coming from. Okay, you're referring to the financial crisis. Yeah, got it. But it was the Icelandic banks that caused it, wasn't it? No. <laughs> it was the subprime mortgage stuff in the US. Whatever Maybe it was, it put me out of bloody work, it did. But... Okay. So were you stressed? Were you 
stressed or you were just like, okay, I had a Porsche one day, now it's gone, it's that's fine. I had a nice silver silver van, um, four wheels. It did the same job as the Porsche. Um, I was kind of like, when I got told I was, we were all out of a job. I was like, how am I going to pay my mortgage? Um, and I'm one of the people that said, has always said, I will always be able to earn money. No, if even if I have to go work at McDonald's to earn money to pay the bills, I go and work at McDonald's. Um, and why I was doing all of those drinks, years in the drinks industry, I was also doing other stuff on the side that was bringing in more money um, that what? I used to do. Sorry? Work what? Selling drugs? S- <laughs> no. um, selling flags and scarves at football matches. <laughs> that was bringing in more? It was bringing in additional money. It was another revenue stream. So I would buy, I would basically go to Cardiff. I used to sell um, footy records at the stadium. Sorry, say again? I used to sell the um, the record. Is that, Do you have it here? The magazine. The, the you know, the programme. The programme? Yeah, but you, <laughs> were sell, you were selling that on behalf of the football ground. Oh, you were just doing your own. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so I, I, would, I would go to Cardiff. Wembley was closed. Wembley was being rebuilt. So all of the cup finals went to Cardiff and they should have gone for maybe two or three years, but Wembley took way longer. So they stayed in Cardiff for a long time. The FA Cup final was there. Um, the playoff finals, which was three days of finals, was there. The LDV vans, the LDV trophy was in Cardiff. There's loads of these finals in Cardiff at the Millennium Stadium. And I would drive down the M4 with my company car fully loaded up with flags, scarves, hats, uh, horns, all sorts of stuff that I bought. You bought you bought it at pennies and you sold it for pounds and pounds and pounds. And, and what you, just you do did is that you, for fun on the weekend. Yeah, I did it. I did it for fun, but I also did it because it brought in a serious amount of money very quickly. How old were you? I was I was in my thirties. And what what was motivating you to make extra money? I didn't need to make extra money. Everything was covered with what I earned from the drinks industry. It was just it was so easy money. It, the, the, to, to make that money selling that merchandise was easy. You and you then bought, what? Would, and then so, what would you do with that extra money? Save it. So, um, <laughs> um, some, I re-double glazed the house, put all the new double glazing in the house with one portion of that money, used to put it into pay for our holidays and things like that, basically, just just nice things. Like I just used it for, for stuff, basically. Um, I used to have <laughs> rolls of money everywhere. <laughs> it was nuts. Um... But yeah, I I would buy, to give you an idea of the the, the economies of scale, a horn was £1.25. You bought 100 horns. Um, You sold them for a fiver. A scarf you bought for 250. You would start the day selling that at 10. Before kickoff, it would be seven. After the match, it would be five. But you aimed to sell everything before kickoff. So you left before the traffic came out. Um, Flags. I think it was a five by seven flag 
we got them for about 175 and you sell them for 10 pound and this is like the team flag yeah so whoever was at the final whether it be if it was so one of the ones i did was liverpool west Ham. so i would be at one end with all the liverpool stuff and my mate was at the other end with all the west Ham stuff he would try and sell his trolleys load i would sell mine money would then get to put together we would split it and and, and would the stadium be annoyed at you we were selling unofficial legal merchandise nothing was um breaching trademark or anything like that we were licensed to stand on the street um so obviously they they they, they we weren't we weren't the favorite people of the ground or grounds that you went to but you had a right to be there because we had licenses we had merchandise which was legal to sell trading standards were always out at the big finals trading standards were coming around checking your license checking all your gear um i actually got i got pulled up one year i had jester's hats you no know, like spiky jester's hats and the ones i'd previously had had a label and you have to have a label in that says what it's made out of uh, that it's not a kid's toy uh, how to wash it things like that and that it's uh, fire, whether it's fire resistant or not and i'd bought some uh, a box of like a 200 jester's hats and they didn't have labels so i got pulled but they basically said take them off sale but I was back the next day, so I had to go home that night. I bought some stickers for my printer, little sticker labels. I had to print out 100% polyester labels and stick them all in each hat. Machine wash at 40 degrees, stick them all in each hat. Not a child's toy, stick them all in each hat, um, which was a bit of a job. Before then driving back to Cardiff the next day to go and sell them hats. So, yeah. Um, okay, so, so the car business. Yes. So I started a car repair business that saved people money on their repairs as we went into that financial crisis. So lots of people were losing their jobs or were their pay rises weren't getting paid and things like that. And I could repair a, a wheel at their house in 30 minutes for 60 quid, where if they took it to a body shop, they would have to leave their car there for the day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So and the business model... How do I market it? Um, website, Facebook page. Um, I obviously had a branded van, and at the is very be- gone. I was going to say, very- is there enough demand for it? Yes, massive demand. People and when I when I started mining your- Reading, there were other people doing it, but there wasn't. As the, I could have done three to four repairs a day for four years easily. Now, an average repair was £175. Okay, I could have done four or five of them a day easily if I'd wanted to take the bookings. But I worked out that if I did one and a half repairs a day, brought in quite enough money to pay my mortgage, gave me time to go to the gym in the afternoon. I didn't have to worry about someone walking my dog that I would have to pay for when I was in the drinks industry. I could clean the house, didn't therefore need a cleaner. So I I took a massive, massive pay decrease from the drinks industry, but it was still enough for what I needed. Um, Still meant I could go on a ski holiday, still meant I could go on a summer holiday. I just couldn't go out buying Porsches and fucking brightling watches. You know, 
Um, did you care about that? No, not really. Um, I was, I, to be honest, I was underwhelmed with the Porsche. It wasn't anything that special. Um, it was nice. Spent more time bloody cleaning it and parking it in the furthest spot away from a supermarket door to stop it getting bumped into than, than anything else. But um, it was nice. I, I'm glad I did it. Did it before I was 40. Um, which a lot of people say, oh, you don't want to be doing it after you're 40 because it's just a midlife crisis. Did it before I was 40. Um, or was it before I was 50? No, yeah, before I was 40. Um, so, yeah. So, was... you, didn't, you didn't let it affect your ego too much? No. Because no. a lot of people, you know, this happens and people, or people get, it's that lifestyle creep. Like people, their money increases. So then it's like they need a bigger house. Like they upgrade everything. Well, and I was, doing I was, and it's, it's, when we get onto Austria, which we'll get onto very soon, I'm sure, is, I, I say I never, I never pushed for a promotion, but I just got, get, kept giving them. Therefore, I never had to ask for a pay rise because every one to two years I was getting promoted and the pay went up. And then when I went, when I went to, um, when I went to Cobra, the increase in pay was just, it was fucking stupid. Um, and I. I would say I did start to become that person. I had the Porsche, I had the big watch. My, my jeans were worth more than my sofa's worth, you know, and things like that. And and you, you become a bit of a twat. Um, but when I lost it, I wasn't really that bothered. I was like, oh, so what? I'll go Primark and buy a pair of jeans now for eight quid. You know what I mean? And and that's kind of what I do, I do now. And how I ended up in Austria, it's December... Something like the 15th, I'm on a driveway in High Wycombe. I've got an inflatable shelter over a car. It's freezing cold and it's snowing. And I'm trying to paint this car. And my airline is freezing. My compressor is pumping out moisture into the airline, which is freezing. I've got an ultra, uh, uh, an infrared lamp shining on me to keep me warm. I've got one on the airline to keep it defrosted. And all of a sudden I went, what the fuck are you doing? If you want to be sat in the snow, go to Austria. Came home, put the house on the market, got rid of the business, came to Austria. <laughs> what? <laughs> Literally like that. I um I went home and I started Google ski instructors because um, any instructor qualification I had from back in the day had gone. It had gone. So I started Googling ski instructor courses how to become a ski instructor, uh, like the blah, 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 blah. And uh, I found this company based in Caprun. And by this time, Christmas had been and gone, New Year had been and gone, and me and three mates were going on a ski holiday to Austria in the February, January or February. And I'd emailed this company and said, I see you do the ski instructor course, six week program, guaranteed job at the end. Um, this is what I've done in the past. This is how many years I've skied. What do you think? And they came back and said, yeah, you shouldn't have a problem passing. You're going to have to learn German. Um, we think you'll fit the course. Now, of course they said that because they want to sell a bloody course. Um, so I said, their website at the time didn't look too professional. Um, but they were very much in their infancy. 
And I said, okay, I said, well, I want to come over and look you guys in the eye before I part with a shitload of money. So I said to the guys who, who I was skiing with, it was about seven grand. Um, so I said to the guys I was skiing with, I said, who wants to go to Caprun in April? Let's have a second ski holiday. And I think two or three of them, there was four of us, three of them said yes. And then we got another guy to come with us as well. So we all came to Caprun in the April so I could meet these people who I was going to do the course with in the following November. And that's basically it. I, I, I met these guys in the April. House went on the market. I, I actually leased the business for the first winter. I leased it out to somebody. Um, and I came over. I did the course. I qualified. I started work. And then I was like, right. I'm, ba- I'm back where I've wanted to be for so long. I'm not not coming back. Now, I had to come back to the UK to take the business over again and run it that summer. So I ran it for that summer for about three Did months. Did you sell your house? No, house didn't sell that winter. Um, I came back. Were you with your partner still? Um, so the girl I went to Australia with, we got married in 2003. And we were getting unmarried from... I came in in 2012, so we were getting unmarried from about 2010 and a half, 11. Was that part of the reasoning? Um, it allowed me to, because I was getting unmarried. So it meant I could come to Austria, because she wouldn't have come to Austria. So that, it, it kind of helped. Um, but up until, up, and, up until me coming back from Austria the first season, we, we were still legally married because the divorce hadn't come through. She was living in our house that winter. I came back. She left the house. I lived in the house until it was sold. And then she went airway and I came back here. Um, And that was, so my first winter was 2012-13. Came back to England, summer 13. Came back over here, August 13. And then I've been here ever since. So this is the start of my 11th season. I've done 10 years and nine years in this apartment. Now, the finance kind of thing, going from the big job at Cobra to earning not not a lot doing the cars, but paying the bills and still being able to do stuff. Obviously coming here to start earning ski instructor basic wages again, now you're talking no money. You're talking nothing. You're talking 850 euros a month. So I took my money from a house in the UK and bought a 30 square meter apartment in Caprun, which at the time I was told was overpriced. Um, But I didn't really have much of a choice. I didn't want to start renting and losing money hand over fist year on year. So I bought this apartment outright and I've lived in this apartment for almost all of the years I've been in Caprun. I lived in it for the first season with another ski instructor who needed somewhere to live. I then got another girlfriend. She lived here with me for several, four or five years. We then bought a bigger house, split up, sold that house. I came back to this apartment three years ago. Um, And I've been in this apartment since. I'm about to move on Monday, tomorrow even. I'm moving to... Um, the other side of Caprun, but into a bigger apartment because obviously, as you know, I've had a child. 
and I need a bigger apartment. So this is going to go on to rental to pay my rent. So this will pay my rent for the other one. So I shouldn't be any worse off. But if you think I had to get rid of that Porsche, I couldn't, I didn't have the money coming in that I had. Once I got here, I had even less. And I'd gone from a three-bedroom semi-detached house in a nice part of Reading to a 30-square-meter studio apartment that is basically a small bathroom, a hallway, one room that's got a kitchen area, a sofa and a bed. Um, And like when I lost the Porsche and lost all that money, I was kind of like, well, I'm going to go skiing every day for free. So I don't need anything more than a 30 square meter apartment. I've got a balcony. I've got a view of a glacier. I take my dog for a walk for an hour in the morning. I go skiing for four hours of the day. I come back, take my dog for a walk. And then I can sit on the sofa and see the TV. I don't even see my bed. So I'm in my living room. I want to get into bed. My eyes are closed. I'm in my bedroom. And if I'm cooking in the kitchen, I'm in the kitchen. You know? So I saw it as... I've got, I think at one point I'd, I'd zoned this apartment into 12 areas. But it's a 30 square meter apartment. But I've lived in it for the best part of 10 years. And I absolutely love it. And I actually don't want to move into a bigger apartment, albeit I've got to. Because I love this apartment. Even though it's nothing more than a basic Austrian hotel room. You know? Um, but again, that's just how I, 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 I kind of, I climbed that slippery corporate pole coming from a guy who was pushing trolleys at a fucking supermarket and then a bartender, made so much money and then basically came back to earning less than I was earning when I was a first-year bartender, you know? Um, albeit now, as you know, because you've been one of my guests on one of my camps, I've built a winter business, which it it doesn't bring me a massive amount more, but my ski instructor wage has gone up to a, an averagely all right monthly salary, the additional money from my business helps. Five years ago, I managed to buy another apartment downstairs, which has been on rental, like Airbnb stuff, for the last five years, other than COVID, when we couldn't rent it. Um, and because of COVID, as I said at the beginning, I've now got a restaurant, which is only in the summer because it's on a mountain and we can't operate in the in the in the winter, um, which. In the first year, didn't make us any money. In the second year, made us a little bit of money. And in the third year, has made us a little bit more money. So I still don't earn anywhere near what I used to earn. But I am richer in so many other ways that I don't need any. I, and the funny thing is, Dean, yeah, this is, and this is, I was thinking about this the other day, is I actually have more money in the bank now, just sat in the bank, than I've ever had in the bank, even when I was earning crazy money. Because I did that thing that people do, which is, ooh, promotion, bigger car, bigger house, more expensive jeans, go to that restaurant, not that restaurant. And, and therefore, that, that fucking, that, promo, that promotion and that additional money, you don't see it because you spend it. You know what I mean? We're here, yeah. I earn less money, but I spend less money. As I said, I'm, I have more spare time. I pretty much plan my own diary other than in the summer for the 16 weeks the restaurant's open. I have to be there seven days a week. Um, I have more holiday than I've ever had. I've just, last day of work, well, I say last day of work, 
The last day of work in the restaurant was the 18th of September. I am working, running the business and getting it ready for the winter. But in essence, I have had from the 18th of September until when I start on snow on the 20th of November off. So I've had two months of holiday, you know, and then I'll get another four to six weeks at the end of the ski season before I have to start summer. Which I'd rather earn a bit less money and have eight to ten weeks holiday a year. Yeah. Okay, I think we're going to need to do a part two because we haven't even started talking about skiing hardly because I want to talk about, yeah, lots of things like your skiing accident, got your time in COVID, like um, starting to make content. And I just mm-hmm. also just have so many questions about how you, like the resilience you have to bounce back from to adapt, I guess, and accept the different things that happened. But, yeah, we've already been talking for an hour and 20, so we should probably wrap up. Time flies. So part two coming your way soon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And also just your thought, I mean, yeah, because you then had so much time, you didn't come back to England. Also, I'm so curious on your thoughts of... um yeah, kind of how English people are. Well, actually, some of your stories from Austria and, like, racism in Austria that you've told me in the past. And then also England about your attitude, because your work ethic attitude seems to me to be, like, very different from what I from what I see here. So I'm interested on in your thoughts about In terms you- of, like, a lot of people just don't have this work ethic. Okay, so you see it as a good work ethic. Yeah. (laughs) You're just like seeing opportunities and you're taking advantage of them rather than being a victim and being like it's all the government's fault. and Like you haven't had to say one thing this whole time that is kind of this victim or or entitled. I I think, and it's it's funny because you just said we're going to wrap it up and then we're going on to another tangent and I listened to your... No, um, I'm saying this is for part two, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, but um, I I kind of need to answer what you've just said or it will be lost before we do part two, but I... um, I wouldn't say I see the positive in everything, but I see the opportunities in a lot of things. So... If if my knee injury, which we'll talk about in part two, had stopped me from being able to ski, and I'd been told that at the beginning of that injury, by the time I was walking again, I would have found an opportunity to keep me within the ski industry because my expertise is now in the ski industry, along with my sales background, marketing background, selling swag on the street background, um, pushing trolley background, no qualification background, I would have worked a way of meaning I could continue to bring money in to have a good lifestyle, pay my bills, live in where I live. And come on, I live in one of the most premier ski resorts in Europe, for God's sake, you know. Um, I would have managed or found something because that's the kind of way I look at things. I don't go, fuck, who's going to bail me out this time? You know? Now, granted... I'm currently on benefits because in Austria, when you're not em- employed and being paid, you have to register unemployed to be insured. 
And if you're insured, you get a benefit. That's the Austrian system. So I'll take that benefit at the end of the month. But the minute I start work again, I have to come off that benefit. But my taxes accrue credit in that system for at the end of the winter when I have a six-week absence of work. Because we are so driven by the tourism seasons in Austria, they know you are going to be off for six weeks. We need to support you. I'll take that support, but I'm never going to say to the Austrian government or the British government, you need to bail me out. I'll bail myself out. I'll do something, whether it's go go and wash cars, work at McDonald's, fucking deliver papers if I have to at the age of 52. Because that's kind of, and that's been instilled in me from very early on. My dad was self-employed. My mum was self-employed. My dad got rid of the shops, had another business where he worked seven days a week. My mum worked from home doing stuff. And, and again, I think a lot of my entrepreneurialism comes from seeing my mum. My mum was knitting and selling the products she was knitting. So people would say, can you make me a jumper? Yes, there's your jumper. Thanks, there's the money. And then she started making wedding dresses and she's not a dressmaker. She was just very good at, at making stuff, you know? So I think growing up seeing my mum do them things kind of is, is why I can just like, okay, I'll turn my hand at anything, you know? Well, look mm -hmm. at me now. I've got a restaurant. I'm in the kitchen. I'm the head chef in the restaurant. Now, I've got a restaurant background from Fridays, but I never worked in the kitchen, but not cooking food. I did do some work in the kitchens at Fridays, but I never cooked food. I'm now pumping out 70 to 100 dishes a day in a restaurant kitchen. It's crazy. Anyway, we need to stop and get ready for part two. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? Any sign-off? Hopefully, everybody enjoys the last hour and a half of drivel and they come back for part two because we're going to talk about some very exciting topics, including my knee, which, yeah, could have could have done my head in. Okay. See you for part two. See you for part two.